Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Achtung, achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and James Holland, of course, um, in this uh, bumper-stuffed Subway sandwich of lockdown extra goodies. Um, We've got all the toppings. Um, So, uh, James, who are we joined by today? And I'm... this is uh, this is I'm very excited about this. <laughs> yeah, this, this feels like, like this is the daddy, doesn't it? Because we've got we've yeah, got does, yeah. we've got Professor John Buckley, of whom you and I are, are um, obvious yep. acolytes, and um, yep. uh, John is as uh, professor of military history at Wolverhampton University, uh, uh, the first um, such undergraduate course in the country. I think I'm right in saying, uh, and he is someone who has had an enormous impact and influence on my writing and my understanding of the Second World War, and indeed yours well, as well, a, I think. Um, well, and a, and a university that had the good sense to give me an honorary doctorate <laughs> as well, so... Um, uh... <laughs> So we so today we're saying hello to John Buckley. Well welcome John. Hi, thanks, thanks for joining, joining us. us. Glad to be here. <laughs> now um now, uh, James, you go, you go first because you're absolutely bursting with questions. Go. Well, I have, and you know, <laughs> J- J- John and I have sort of, you know, um, irregular conversations, don't we, John? Um, yeah. Where we sort of chew the cud, and, and it's always incredibly useful. So, my issue at the moment that I'm my, my little sort of little conundrum, well, not conundrum, but my little sort of um, thing I'm trying to untangle, is that it's very clear to me in the early stages of the Normandy campaign. I'm particularly looking at the Sherwood Rangers at the moment, who are obviously part of Eighth Armoured mm-hmm. Brigade, mm-hmm. and in their first engagements, they're, they're first setting off from the D-Day beaches, they're going inland as 8th Armoured Brigade. They're not operating with infantry to start off with, the 50th Division. They've left them behind and they're doing a holding operation on a bit of high ground uh, called Point 103, which is between the village of Audreuil and tilly sur Mm -hmm. And they end up getting bogged down there for quite a long time, not least because the Panzerlehr turn up at exactly the opposite side of the Seoul River. Yeah. Uh, and they have a massive ding-dong, which doesn't really kind of sort itself out till the very end of end of June 1944. But but in that middle section of June, so around the sort of 17th, 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th, the armour of 8th Armour Brigade, of which Sherwood Rangers obviously is a part, is operating with, I think it's the 49th Division. Mm-hmm. And it is clear that 
Armour Infantry Cooperation is absolutely... Well, it's not appalling, <laughs> but it's not good. It's not good at all. Yeah, yeah. And, and you can see from the commander, the tank commander's uh, comments in war diaries, in accounts of O groups and meetings at 8th Armour Brigade and all the rest of it, that, that they're all getting very, very frustrated mm. that the infantry don't seem to be kind of sticking with them. And that the moment the enemy open up, they hit the deck and the guys in the tanks are left abandoned and then can no longer communicate with them. Now, if everyone's been kind of, you know, training in England for, or either they've got lots of experience from North Africa or they've been training in England, certainly for six months, but, but in many cases for kind of two years, why on earth haven't they done more training beforehand <laughs> with armour? Well, as the, the principal reason is that the whole idea of how the British Army approaches uh, doctrine and training, which is uh, something dates back to the 19th century, um, but carries on through the first First World War, but also into the Second World War, which is basically you make it up as you go along. Um, and the idea of uh, doctrine, a written formal doctrine, how you do this, how you have ideas on uh, mixing infantry and armour together in battle, um, is left to... Uh, middle-ranking commanders to interpret. Um, so it's not fixed, it's not set, it's open to the, the commanders to uh, decide on how they approach things. As long as they don't break the doctrine, uh, it's up to them how they how they then put it into action. Um, which is good in many circumstances. If you've got an army which is operating across the globe in various imperial ventures and, and so on in the 19th century, early 20th century, you need flexibility. The commander's got to be able to interpret doctrine and ideas how you do things as you, uh, as you see fit on the ground. Um, so it's understandable why they approach it in the way they do. And that latitude is good in lots of circumstances. But when it comes to fixing a mass army uh, to take on the Germans in the Second World War, it isn't really the most appropriate way to do things. Um, and so what you get by the time of Normandy is commanders interpreting experience, who they've last spoken to, official doctrine, and they put their own ideas together. So different formations start the Normandy campaign um, with, as you say, some of them are experienced from North Africa, which isn't always a good thing because it teaches them bad habits and the wrong approach. It doesn't really work very well in Northwest Europe. You've got some units in the UK that have been training in Britain, um, but with limited scope to train, really. Um, there's not that much space. Farmers don't like it if you yomp across their fields and destroy their crops in 1943. Um, so you have limited scope to, to carry out these kind of moves and this kind of training. Um, and so they interpret doctrine in a different way. Um, if they've had conferences and uh, uh, they've spoken to different commanders and different people in the field, they come at it with different ideas. So what you get in the first weeks of Normandy is an army which has got um, uneven doctrine and uneven ways of approaching things. And that particularly plays out in this problem that you're referring to, infantry armour cooperation, because that is the biggest difficulty that armed forces, armies have to deal with during the Second World War, um, which they still haven't really resolved um, until, well, much later in the Normandy campaign, maybe even into the autumn of 1944. Uh, and that is how you get infantry and armour to cooperate and work closely together. They don't have um, a, a set method of doing things, nor, in fact, does anybody by this stage. Um, you know, we always hear about how the Germans are fantastic at mixing infantry and armour together and their blitzkrieg, panzer grenadier kind of the, stuff. Their Kampfgruppen and all the rest of Absolutely, it. yeah, yeah. And um, it doesn't work in 1944 because the Allies have got such massive artillery. If you start trying to... Uh, manoeuvre around um, infantry in half-track vehicles and things um, and keep them moving forward in an offensive, uh, they'll get plastered, and which is exactly what happened all the time. Uh, Especially if you're not in control of the yes. air, which is... which is So 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 the moment you can't fight in 3D, mm. that, that that gets much more difficult. I mean, it is, it, it is interesting, isn't it? Because, the, the, you, I mean, you touched on it there, the idea that the Germans are brilliant at all this. But the, the, the Germans are more do, doctrinally unified, yeah. aren't they? Because basically, they either go east or they go yeah. west. The, ger, the, ger, the German army—they've got they've, they've got two directions mm -hmm. to tra of yeah, travel. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes <laughs> south, but either, either east or west, and that's basically mm -hmm. it. Whereas, as you say, the you know, if you're a, if you're a, an infantry battalion, I mean, it's posted to Malta in 1938. Mm -hmm. Your experiences of sort of 
a bit of policing and drinking gin and yeah, tonics, isn't it? Playing yeah. cricket. Uh, uh, and after all, you've also got that interwar culture uh, uh, of some people, obviously, they don't think they're ever going to have to fight another war like this ever mm. again. Some people don't want to ever have to fight a war or think about a war sure. like this ever again. And then obviously the, the bods and the boffins and the, the brains going away trying to mm. work it out. But it's all, that's all being done in a vacuum as well, where you can't, like you say, you can't practice. There's no mm. money um, to do it. And also, no political intention of the, you know ten year the ten year rule. And yeah, so on. I mean it's really it, it, it's it's really interesting because among the Sherwood Rangers accounts, a lot of them are saying we realise very very quickly that Normandy is not like North Africa. It's not even like Northern Tunisia. Mm. That this 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 is very close. Come out. This is going to require a completely different way of thinking and mm. operating. And so instead of operating as a regiment, which is basically what they were doing in North Africa, they're now operating as squadrons, where quite often they're completely detached from the from regimental headquarters, apart from kind of, you know, occasionally the CEO turns up mm-hmm. or occasional kind of sort of radio contact and the rest of it. But they can be operating in completely different parts of the battlefield from one another. And someone who's got a friend in A squadron who's in C squadron might not see him for weeks or, or certainly long days. So they are kind of, you know, already that's that's... That's very different. I suppose my big point is, is, you know, whenever I've interviewed people, I've said, did you do any all arms training? And they all say, no. no. <laughs> uh, except, except that, that, you know, when you read Stanley Christopherson's diaries, who, who becomes the commanding officer of the Sherwood Rangers, when he's in Tunisia at the beginning of January 1943, he said, we recognise the importance of doing more all arms training. So we got together with some of the infantry of the, of the mm. division we're working with, uh, and with our um, with our artillery, and we started doing some really hardcore training because we've all realised that we need to kind of up our game and mm. kind of improve. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a that's a kind of a comparatively rare instance of it. But certainly for those in England, in the build up to, um, I, I don't think I've ever come across anyone who I've interviewed who's uh, who said that they did any all arms training. And you do wonder why, you know, even if they're being left to kind of work it out for themselves once they get out there. The, the very concept of it is yeah. something that you need to think about. Why, I, why is that? Because it's so obvious. You know, you can't tell me that kind of Alexander and Montgomery and, and Ronald Adam and, <coughs> and Brooke and all these people mm. don't, don't understand the concept of all arms training. No, no. I mean, Monty's very keen on the idea. <coughs> um, he comes back, and, but in typical Monty fashion, he comes back from North Africa at uh, the beginning of 1944 and starts trying to throw his weight around about how to do everything. Um, and he tries to impose... Um, kind of the Eighth Army method of infantry armour cooperation. Of uh, I mean, there are all there are all sorts of different techniques. And if you really want to go into the the doctrine of how it's all supposed to be done, there's kind of like something called the sandwich method, where you led with um, some tanks, the infantry follow on immediately behind, and there are more tanks behind to provide support. And mixing all of that together is is a real issue. Um, but Monty's approach was that you do what we've done in the desert. Um, and his experience and his learning and the, the, the kind of doctrine he wants to bring back with him is that which worked in mainly in the deserts of Libya uh, and, and Egypt, um, which isn't entirely applicable. The problem those in England have when he comes back and starts saying, this is how you do this and this is the doctrine I want to use, is that it's very difficult, one, to say no to Monty, because he's Monty, and uh, two, it's difficult to say no to the only serious winning army um, uh, that the British have uh, managed to build during the Second World War by that time. So it, the, the kind of the resistance breaks down. So there is an impasse between Monty's approach, which is to do things where you, you often you fight to a degree with separate infantry and armour formations. What you don't want, which will happen in the desert, is the slower moving infantry having to be supported by your faster moving army. You want to give the armour the freedom to manoeuvre over wide open right. terrain and so on. Um, and that works. But isn't that the degree. principle? Isn't isn't that the principle of the armoured division as opposed to the independent armour brigade? Because so you have the independent armour brigade, mm. you know, in theory, kind of operating hand in glove with with an infantry division. So an armoured mm. brigade, you've got your three armoured regiments, one for each of the infantry battalions to mm. support one of each infantry battalions. Mm. But, but when you've got an armoured division, the armoured division is there to exploit and kind of, you know, go off and swan off on but a But in, in both cases, they haven't really worked through how that's going to be done. Um, within the armoured division, mm. you, you're right, it's kind of a separate role, um, but the infantry and the army is intended to fight separately, but they quickly work out that doesn't work. Um, and 
even an experienced commander, so Pip Roberts, the 11th Armoured Division, comes back and he's a wealth of experience in North Africa. And it takes him a while to get his formation, his new charges, who are mostly inexperienced, um, to do what he wants them to do with this, with this much more integrated approach, which comes later in the campaign. Um, but the, there's another level of difficulty in that the official doctrine of how you do this is just starting to catch up based on the experience of the Mediterranean, the problems of infantry armour cooperation. Right. Um, but it, the, the final doctrine is only issued in about April, May of 1944. So it's a bit late in the day to suddenly change everything. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of the difficulties they have is that the independent brigades um, were originally supposed to be all equipped with Churchill tanks for close infantry support and so they had an idea right. of how that would work the the armor being more uh, the tank being more thickly protected thicker armor would be able to go in close with the infantry on in, in attacks um but it became apparent by ni- late 1943 that was never going to happen they they simply couldn't produce enough churchills um and so they started having to use shermans for these independent brigades such as the the eighth um yeah. And Monty was all in favour of that. He wanted a single tank. He didn't like the Churchill at all. Um, it kept breaking down. British tanks are rubbish. We want American tanks. The Sherman works. We want that. The prob- Well, and it done well from Alamein again. Yeah. So it's, it's, this, it's this thing of... Uh, he's looking at his winning streak, mm. isn't he? To, um, to, and, why, and, why, and why wouldn't yes, you? absolutely. You know? I mean, you look at the experience of the British Army up until 1942... And all the British tanks are, are, are rubbish. They don't do what they're supposed to do. They break down. Even when they're technically good in some respects, like the Matilda, um, they, they break down all the time. So there are, the, the real difficulty is that the first tank the British Army gets, which really seems to work, um, is, is the Sherman. So they want that and they only want that. And in some ways, it makes things nice and simple. The problem is, in an infantry support role, the Sherman's not very good. Um, it's, you know, it's got nice firepower, but it, it's very lightly armoured. Um, and so what you get is the different formations um, prior to Normandy and in the early weeks of Normandy working out the right kind of tactics. There were some ideas that you could use an infantry support role. You'd have to use the Sherman um, as a standoff weapon. So rather than going in with the infantry onto a target, you'd have to stand off and fire the infantry, which doesn't work very well because as soon as you get to contact... The infantry reach their target. The Shermans are behind firing in support of them. Um, but you get smoke and dust and all kind of nonsense. They can't see anything anymore. So suddenly, just at the moment when the infantry need it, the armour is a few hundred yards behind, unable to support effectively. But if they're going too close to the infantry, they get shot to pieces by lighter uh, German anti-tank guns. So the Churchill could do that more effectively. Um, but they, again, say so you've got different kind of doctrine ideas but then you've got different types of equipment and different information about how you use this kind of stuff. Um, and Monty at the top saying, no, no, one doctrine, one doctrine, one method. And the Royal Armoured Corps saying, that's not going to work. We, we need different doctrines. So there's a real level of confusion at the start of the campaign um, with some units adopting some approaches uh, relevant to the, the kind of kit they've been, they've, they've been supplied with and other formations doing different things. The armoured divisions have this kind of idea of fighting separately with infantry and armour. Um, but when, it, as James says, once you get into the campaign, that's not going to work. Then you get the independent brigades who are trying to work out this flexible role. They're mixing between different infantry formations all the time. Um, and because the British Army tends to work on word of mouth rather than uh, doing it by a written doctrine... It works best if the infantry and the armoured formations have a bit of work-up time. As James was saying, if they discuss things, yeah, talk and, things and that is the problem. Yeah. And, and what's absolutely clear with the with the arrival of the 49th Division is, I, I think they, you know, some of the units have been involved in in Dunkirk, but they haven't really basically been in action. The sixth and the seventh Duke of Wellington's haven't been in action. They've been in Iceland. I think the sixth Duke of Wellington's have been on Iceland, mm. but they haven't really been in action since 1940. So this is, you know, so pretty much all their personnel are brand new to combat. And there's been no work up time whatsoever. And they go into battle and they're doing their one thing. The tanks are are, are trying to do what they're Mm. supposed to do to support them. Uh, And then suddenly they're finding that the the infantry are kind of sort of deserting them and leaving them. And they don't know what's going on. And as you say, the smoke and fog of war Mm. suddenly hits them and they're they're exposed. Yes, absolutely. But but what they do, you know, but they're start. you can see them all kind of, all the tank guys all kind of sort of trying to work out how to kind of, improve things and one of them is is that 
you know, the allotted um, fireflies, for example, have been with the squadron headquarters. Mm. It's like mm. a squadron headquarters uh, of, of three or four tanks, and I think it's four tanks, and they're all fireflies. So instead mm. of having three man, of three tank troops, they then make four man troops, mm. and and add one of the the fireflies mm. to it. And they're just, and I know other armored units are coming to that same conclusion, but that is. That is a, a ch- arrived at quite independently by the Sherwood Rangers at this point. Mm. Before but they the only the got the five. They only got Firefly at the last minute yes. as well. So, so you've the got three hundred and forty-two this- on D Day. Yeah, and they're, and and they're they're delivered in May or something, yeah. aren't they? So yeah. you've, I mean, uh, so so what you've got is a sort of, um, you know, the aspirations of doctrine versus the the, the reality of the battlefield. Sure. You've then got the interpretations of doctrine by individual commanders. From from top to bottom, so you've got Monty attempting to set the set the agenda. Then various divisional commanders going, "Well, he's wrong about that." Lieutenant, but the brigadiers, then lieutenant colonels, they run their battalion their way. Thank you very mm-hmm. much. Then the armoured squadrons, they do things. I mean, you can see why this might happen. I mean, I, 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 rather than because I, I, after all, that that all of all of all of this is the is the sort of the difference between. You know, in the clinch of battle, everything obviously everything's completely different to anything anyone would expect. And you can have the cleverest people on this and the most experienced, but Normandy presents obviously different challenges to to Sicily, to sure. Italy, to the desert, to anywhere else. And they, the, but is there not someone saying you do know Normandy's going to be completely yeah. different to everywhere else, or are they all like, or are they all be, well, you know, eyes down, be, yeah. beetling on? Yeah. There no. is. There's, there's a guy called There's a guy called Tick Bonesteel, um, who is who, who is an American planner, General Bonesteel. He becomes General Bonesteel, but this time he's he is first of all he is very involved with the planning for Sicily. Then he gets brought over and he's very involved with the planning for Twenty First Army Group. And then he goes uh, over to um, Bradley's staff, and he is writing all sorts of reports about the Bocage. And saying everyone's focusing on the on the D Day, but actually, what you really need to think about is what it's going to be like in land. Bocage, bocage. You know, what you really need is some Pershings and all the rest of it. And there's very good reasons for not having Pershings. But he's one of the proponents of bringing in a heavy tank. Um, but but his 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 reasons for doing it are are you know for you know his arguments about the Pershing are questionable. But his warnings about the nature of 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 the geography in Normandy and what is going to face them when they get over there is absolutely mm. spot on. Mm. And I, my own take on this is, and, and John, you, you'll know better than me, um, is that it's not that they don't know this, that, you know, the, the guys at the top, the Montes and Bradleys and all the rest of it and Dempsey's, it's that I can't really do anything about it. <laughs> I mean, you know, from what you're saying, it's, it's, it's all very well saying, you know, me saying, well, why on earth don't they train? Well, they can't train because you, th- there isn't the space in, in, in Britain. There isn't the capacity. Um, they don't have enough um, heavily armoured tanks of, of Churchill's. Um, you know, there's a whole host of other factors, industrial, economic, situation of the war, all the rest of it, which is mitigating against all arms training and the kind of working up with infantry. I mean, the bottom line is, is these independent armoured brigades have to operate with they have to be flexible and operate with numbers of different mm-hmm. infantry units because infantry units simply it's unsustainable keeping them in the front line for more than about six days at a go, at a go mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. 10 days absolutely tops mm-hmm. because after that they that their their casualties are so great that they can no longer properly function mm-hmm. and one of the great virtues of the british system and indeed the american system is that there is this ability there is enough to be able to kind of rotate people in and sure. out and, and, you know, put in new replacements and all the rest of it. But the consequence of that is that British armour, particularly the independent armour brigades, are having to suddenly find themselves in a situation in the middle of a, of, a, of a tough fight where they're suddenly operating alongside the 49th Division, for example, who are brand new to combat, with no work-up time whatsoever. Mm. And that's not really the fault of anybody. That's just the circumstances and the situation of the war and mm. all the rest of it. Mm. Would, would you agree with that, or is that, is that some way... Yeah, no, I think that... that, that that's, that's entirely entirely true. I, I, and there's a further point that you write that they haven't got the time or the um, the space and so on to um, train in the particular kind of ways they expect to, to, to fight in, in Normandy. But you've also got to bear in mind as well that the plan was not to fight in Normandy very long. They don't expect to be fighting in that awful terrain. So if you've got a fixed amount of time to train and prepare, you train and prepare for the campaign you think you're going to fight. 
And yeah. Allied planning is very much that they don't think the Germans will be dumb enough to fight close to the beach. Um, where the Allies will have overwhelming naval gunfire, it'll be closer to the UK um, for air support, um, or, uh, and to fight a fairly static campaign, because in a way that kind of played into Allied hands. It, so the Allies believed about what the German intentions would be. I mean, there's a counter-argument that once you allow the Allies to swarm out all over France, you create all sorts of difficulties yourself. So you could kind of see there is some uh, rationale behind the a rational thinking behind the German strategy. But overall, it doesn't make that much sense. So they think the Germans will play uh, a fighting retreat game. So as soon as the Allies land, get established, no point fighting here anymore, we'll back off into terrain where we can use our clever manoeuvre tactics and try and catch the Allies out a little bit because we're better at it than they are, so they believed. Um, but of course, the Germans don't do that. They dig in and fight like hell in Normandy and reduce everything to an attritional, um, fairly static campaign for a few weeks. Now, that creates all sorts of difficulties for the, uh, for the Allies and those units which are expecting to fight a more fluid kind of campaign. And as we know, it turns into much more of an infantry uh, intensive campaign. Um, but it also uh, creates enormous difficulties for the Germans as well, because basically their, their resources get chewed up by the Allied uh, mincing machine of the artillery and firepower and naval gunfire and so on. Um, to such a point that the, eventually the Germans break and then you get the fluid campaign. But the tactics that you, you would adopt or the doctrine, the training that you're supposedly adopting, even though we can see it's rather uneven, would be based upon where you think you're going to fight most of the campaign. And that would be in more open terrain, further out into France and away from Normandy. So there's kind of a, a reasoning behind why they end up uh, yeah. training and planning to do what they do. Um, but they get caught out a little bit. But equally, the Germans shoot themselves in the foot uh, by carrying yeah. out that kind of strategy. Well, well, so so well, which I mean, I would, which leads to the question: Why why do the Germans make this mistake? Well, it's a combination. As I mentioned, um, the commanders on the spot want to fight um, want to fight further away from the coast. Their idea is to to play a, a, a fighting retreat, but there are some who are arguing, well, look what happens if you try and fight out in the open and manoeuvre around a lot during this period. Um, because the Allies have got such overwhelming air support, if you try and do that, you'll get um, hit really hard. And you, you get a, a conflict between those commanders who see more action on the Eastern Front and those who see more action in the Mediterranean. Um, the Eastern Front commanders don't really appreciate what Allied air power appears to be able to do. Um, and so they're more willing to fight a more fluid battle. The Western Front commanders tend to say, well, hang on, if you manoeuvre around too much out in the open, um, particularly during daylight, uh, we'll get badly hit by the Allied air forces. Look what's been happening in North Africa and um, in, in Italy and so on. And in North Africa, it's going to be much, much worse. So there is a, a battle going on uh, within German high command about how you best uh, fight the Allies. Um, the, the balance is more in favour of manoeuvring and getting away from naval naval guns and so on, on what you're going to get hit with in Normandy. Uh, but nonetheless, there is still a, a, an ongoing battle. Um, but then you also have the bigger, the bigger strategic level um, of Hitler and Berlin saying, don't worry, there's mm. loads of stuff that's going to arrive. Dig in and hold the position as long as possible. And if we can stalemate it till the autumn, we're in with a chance of holding this, yep. holding the invasion in place. Um, and this is what why the Allies had delayed from 1943 to 44. What they didn't want was to land and then get stuck and then have a big, long winter of attrition, not really going anywhere. Um, so, again, you can see why why German thinking is, is pinned on that. It's just unrealistic um, and it's not matching the available resources to the strategic situation no. they've got themselves into, which is ongoing. I, I've heard you guys talk about this uh, before. Um, uh, about there's just a complete mismatch between capability and resources. We're going to take a short break now. James and I are talking to John Buckley. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and James Holland. We're talking to John Buckley, 
But it, but it really is Hitler who's driving this kind of fight for every yard, don't give up, and all the rest of it. Because mm. I mean, there's, there's the, the infamous meeting between Rommel and him at Margeval, and when when Rommel sort of goes, "It is insane mm. not to let me withdraw my troops from the Copenhagen Peninsula. We cannot win this." Mm. So the the net result of that is they're going to get trapped, and you are going to lose all those forces. Whereas if you allow me to withdraw them from the Copenhagen Peninsula, um, then um, they can at least be used at a later stage sure. in the battle. Mm. And Hitler goes, absolutely not. You know, you must... Sherbrooke is a festung, it must be required. You know, can't let the Allies get their hands on that port. Little, And again, kind of totally uh, failing to appreciate that, that the port of Sherbrooke is frankly inconsequential to the outcome of the Normandy campaign. Mm. You know, it, it, you know they're, they're landing all their stuff on, on the beaches and through the mulberries and all the rest of it. They don't need that port particularly. I mean useful but it's not essential by any stretch of the imagination mm. and he's just you know it's Hitler completely misreading it and you know you do get this sort of tantalizing glimpse don't you of, of of Rommel in the middle of July just before he's wounded on the 17th of July where he's starting to talk with and get the co- the coercion of the senior uh, Waffen SS generals as well mm. saying this is insane you know we should we should fall back or call a peace with the Allies or, you know, do mm. something because mm. this isn't working. Mm. Absolutely. And um, the what you see is a kind of, as more commanders arrive from the Eastern Front or those who have had limited experience fighting in the West, arrive in Normandy full of uh, bravado about how it's going to be done and how they're going to do this, that and the other. Then they arrive within a few days saying, ah, it, it doesn't really work, does it? We've got a real problem here and we've got to back off. And that's a repeated message coming through. But of course, the timing of it's important. Firstly, um, Rommel um, gets wounded and comes out of the battle. Uh, but of course, on the 20th, you have the, the bomb plot. So nobody's going to tell Hitler from 20th July onwards, actually, you're wrong on this, so we need to withdraw. Runstead's about the only person who, who, who could, and he's gone. Or oh, they get rid of him. Um, and he keeps telling Hitler, you're wrong. And that's why he keeps getting sacked. Um, but no one's listening in Berlin. Um, and whilst there is um, a scintilla of um, understandable logic in why you don't want to withdraw from Normandy, the weight of evidence is very much in favour that you do. Um, because, I mean, I mean, this ties back a little bit as well to what we started to talk about in the, the way in which the Allies are adapting to the campaign. And whilst the Germans, you say, were fixed on a particular approach and they keep doing the, the same kind of thing and the, the strategy's wrong and the tactics don't really work out too well, the British and the Canadians, and the, and the Americans too, for that matter, are, are adapting their methods and their doctrines to the situation they find themselves in. And the very weakness of um, British approach to doctrine, which is make it up as you go along and interpret it fairly loosely, then becomes an advantage because the campaign they're now in doesn't fit with their, t- so well with their starting doctrine, but they're very good at talking amongst themselves, holding informal conferences and formal conferences for that matter. There is a paper trail on this kind of stuff where you can see they start talking to each other and they work out how to adapt and how to, if you like, grow into the campaign. Um, and by August, they've adapted lots of their methods and te- through late June, July as well. You see this, this, this transition uh, they're starting to be more flexible with their infantry armour formations. They're working more closely together um, and they're working out the best methods and approaches. So if we see with the armoured divisions at the start, it's separate for the most part anyway. Um, within a few weeks, a few days actually, of um, when the Guards armoured arrive uh, in late June, they're being told this isn't, you, you can't fight like that, you've got to do it differently. Um and so later on, within the next few weeks, they start to fight in a much much more mixed um, brigade structure of infantry and armour mixed in balanced forces. So they cooperate and work together. Um, I mean, they, they, they still got the tactical issues because one of the difficulties of infantry armour cooperation, how do you actually do it at a very low level? How, do, how can the infantry talk to the guys inside the tank? Um, you know, there's all this stuff out telephones on the back of the tank will they last about half an hour if in 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 movement that things just fall off get broken um they're using different radio nets uh the uh communication methods are different um and there are, i mean this creates all sorts of difficulties it, you, the armored commander isn't going to take orders from an infantry commander because the infantry don't understand armor and armor don't understand infantry particularly well so 
actually how you work that through is really difficult. And that you, you, you see these stories of infantry commanders stood on the back of a tank in the open, so exposed quite high up in the air, in the middle of a battle, talking to an armoured commander about how to manoeuvre and how to integrate what their, uh, their, their different forces to, to be effective. Um, and they do... What, I mean, one of the things that is quite interesting is at the start of the battle, the idea of infantry riding on the back of tanks uh, was a complete no-no. Health and safety, you know, you can't do it. It's really dangerous. Artillery's flying around all over the place. It breaks all the rules. It's far too dangerous, which in many ways it was. But very quickly, they work out, actually, you've got to. The infantry have got to move with the armour. And until... I mean, they, they used tank rides for a time. And I, I interviewed a, a few guys from 11th Armoured 3rd Royal Tanks. Um, John Langdon and uh, Bill Close and so on, and, and Robin Lemon, who I did a whole series of interviews with them many years ago. And they talked about how they went through this transition of using different tactics, having the infantry ride with them um, when they're manoeuvring forward, because they needed the infantry to um, debus and get straight into action to support the armour, because you can't see anything inside a tank. Visibility is really bad, so you've got to have infantry support in close terrain. Um, uh, ultimately, the, the 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 big change, I suppose, is the introduction of um, kind of pseudo armoured personnel carriers, the kangaroos, um, in, in, at the beginning of August. Um, I mean, they they talked about introducing them for Goodwood, but it was considered too early and not ready, and so on. Um, but by totalise, they want to introduce this, so you've got infantry in fully tracked vehicles able to keep up with the tanks with a reasonable degree of protection so you can actually get them directly into battle because half tracks aren't so good they're okay but fully tracked vehicles really start to uh, solve that problem and it's the anglo-canadian army that solved that problem first tank rides are all very well but it's, it's quite casualty intensive much better to get them in their own armored personnel type carriers uh, and, and debus them straight into action you really start to see that happen by uh, Operation Totalize. Um, it, it doesn't work superbly well throughout, but it works much more effectively than all the previous methods and solves a problem which no other army really has uh, been able to square that particular circle until that time in the war. So you see the. But I suppose but the problem is, of course, is, is building enough kangaroos and rams, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. I and mean, you could argue that why didn't they foresee this before the um, before it all started? Um, and yes, but again. Uh, the British armies and Canadian armies' learning experience was in in Mediterranean North Africa. So in that environment, that's not so important. That's not such a crucial issue. Um, right. So you, you you have to work with your experience, and that's where you build your doctrine from. So it, what was interesting is the the fact that the the Allies are able to adapt their techniques and their methods during the campaign. Um, they're afforded enough space to do that. So, uh, I mean, the, the approach to doctrine would be um, you wouldn't really want to do doctrine that way. But as it ended up in Normandy and there on in, uh, it actually proved to be uh, a bonus. It got them out of the mess that they'd got themselves into, um, which is kind of that, that flexible approach. Whereas I, 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 you've discussed before about the, the Germans stick to the automatic counterattack, the doctrine of being yeah. aggressive in action. Uh, if you lose them, you need to try and get it back. Works most of the time, but if the enemy is firing um, 7.2-inch rounds at you uh, en masse, it's probably not a good idea to immediately counterattack. You're going to get minced, and so you, you should adapt your tactics. And the Germans don't very much. They do change. You know, there is, there is evidence that they do adapt somewhat. Um, but it's not enough. And having a single doctrine works to a degree if it's the right doctrine. And this, but this process of, of, of development and uh, doctrinal growth continues after Normandy, doesn't it? Because after, then you've got, then suddenly you've got that mobile battle that everyone's been um, saving up for, haven't yeah. you? The, 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 rush to, the rush to um to Belgium. Mm. Is is the most and, and always, 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 always is a sort you know is a paragraph at the at the end of any book about Normandy, yeah, yeah, yeah. and and then they get and again they get then then they get and then they get to Brussels and it's the, it's the most extraordinary mm. um, uh, phase of the of the liberation mm. of Europe and it really you you you're hard pressed to find much written about it. Yes, yeah, I mean, I, I, in in popular history. Yeah, yeah, you know, no, no, but I mean, I think we're all um, guilty of it to a degree and. Um, 
uh, uh, the book I did on, on Northwest Europe that I think about the first three, four chapters are about normally in the preparations, one chapter, and then it's Arnhem, you know. Well, there's quite a bit going on in between, as you correctly say. And some fantastic stories of um, Allied troops advancing through the night, driving down roads, and they look over their shoulders and there's a bunch of Germans in a field looking completely bewildered to be mute by the rate of the Allied advance and it gets scooped up and generals are being caught and everything. Um, yep. So it's a, it's a fin- And again, there's a degree of flexibility there and you know, the Allied armies are often accused of not seizing their moments and their opportunities particularly. Well, this was seized relatively well. Um, and the, the speed and rate of the advance and the way in which the, the engineers and, and the, uh, the communications troops managed to keep the, the forces mobile enough to make the kind of rapid advance and exploit it as much as they could, I mean, it, it shows a, a reasonable degree of, of flexibility and, and ability to plan as you're going along. Um, so, uh, I mean, again, you, you get the, the carping criticism, uh, which is sometimes, through, well, they didn't do it well enough. Why didn't they um, trap the 15th Army? Uh, and stop it from getting across, and, and so on. Why did they stop at Antwerp and not go further on in order to block their route out? Well, th- this is well off the um, well off the plan by this stage. They're, by that stage of the campaign, they're about eight or eight months ahead of schedules to where they thought they were going to be by that stage. So they they often don't have maps, particularly good maps. They're making it up as they go along, um, and in those circumstances that's when some choices can be made which don't quite work out as effectively as perhaps they should. Um, but, I mean, the, the rate of the advance is, I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just so impressive. Um, um, and the fact that they're in Brussels, Antwerp and so on, they, they see those objectives um, so rapidly by the 3rd, 4th September thereabouts, um, considering where they'd been just a couple of weeks beforehand, just shows the, uh, the ability of an army such as that. And it's a very mobile army. Yes, they're having to drop units off uh, in order to maximise their fuel and, and lift capacity. But it's an army that moves really quickly and it's a mobile army, not necessarily a manoeuvre, it's a slightly different thing, but it can move quickly and, and it's able to seize those opportunities, as indeed the Americans do in the South as well. Um, so it, it shows what an army uh, with resources and with some degree of flexibility can achieve in an environment like that. It's just pretty effective at it. I mean, when they get to when they get to um, uh, uh, Belgium uh, to Antwerp, they're using like roadmaps, aren't yes. they? They've, they've not got they've not got any maps. Yes. They've, they're they're likely using a, a, a traffic map. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's kind of the famous old stories of nineteen forty: the Germans stopping at um, petrol filling stations and uh, pinching the map to find out where the hell they are because they've gone off their own maps. But yeah, the the, the, the British are having to do that. Um, comments by Pip Roberts and other leading commanders of the 11th Armoured who was first into these kind of areas or one of the first units into these areas um, saying exactly that you know, we were just going hell for leather and trying to capture what we could and travelling through the night when they're not supposed to um, and seizing the moment as best they could and it was kind of more of a, a strategic choice I guess or operational choice uh, not to advance further out of Antwerp but um you have to look at where they are by that stage. Yes, they could have gone a bit further, but attention was then starting to switch to delivering a knockout blow. Trapping the 15th Army doesn't deliver a knockout blow. It's a good position to take, but it doesn't get you across the Rhine. So you can see why attitudes start to shift and resources start to shift in a different direction by that point, which, of course, is what leads to Market Garden. Yeah, yeah, because, I mean, I, I often think... Uh, and we we do talk about market garden a lot on this podcast because it's sort of my my entry point to all of this um uh is that is that putting yourself in the position of the people making that decision in early in early september or in late august really mm-hmm. because after all there's all those other um airborne ops being planned and and, and all with the, basically the same principal idea that that you use it you use it to do another leapfrog mm-hmm. that it it extends your extends your leapfrog sort of ability mm-hmm. Um, that 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 uh, if you're not taking that period of of the post Normandy battle into account properly, looking what they're doing, how mobile they can mm. be, if you're not if 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 you're not really looking at that as a thing that's happening to them at that very moment, I don't think you can quite understand why they make the decisions they do. 
to, to go ahead with Market Garden. That, that what they've achieved is extraordinary. They think, well, we can get we, we'll squeeze the lemon a bit more, and we'll get we'll get some more of that out. Yeah, of it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, absolutely. And I, I, mean, I, I discussed with um, a, a, a number of times. Right? You know, people look back on it with hindsight and say, Market Garden is clearly the wrong choice in September uh, 1944. Well, it's not clearly the wrong choice. Maybe the plan isn't the the right plan to go with, um, but the strategy is sound enough in terms of um, you want to deliver that knockout blow. You look at your alternatives. The knockout blow is probably trying to get across the Rhine. Maybe Arnhem's not the way to go, and the there's a de- I mean, it's, it's really fast. There's a debate about the debate about Vasil. Yes, yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And um, I, what, what's fascinating, and I, and I did some stuff on this a few years ago, was about the decision-making process with Monty about why he ends up committing to Market Garden when nearly everybody around him was saying, I think this is a really bad idea. And it's uh, within his 21st Army Group staff, um, his chief of staff, his chief of plans of operations and so on, uh, were all, and his intelligence chief, were all started to get cold feet about Market Garden, yet it still goes ahead. Um, and it's kind of an interesting you know, idea about high-level decision-makers, you know, they're kind of the great at the top who have to make these big decisions. And there's a point at which their self-worth and self-determination uh, that they're always right starts to run a little bit out of control. Kind of the victory disease idea, um, but uh, Monty's chief um, logistics officer, Miles Graham, referred to it, Monty's having barren moments, B-A-R-O-N, barren moments. He becomes the big leader and you just do what I say. And it runs a little bit out of control by this time. And despite the facts that others are saying this is a bad plan, Monty's big picture view is that we need to get this uh, big knockout punch in order to get across the Rhine. This is the plan I think will work. And so he drives it through against a lot of advice. Um, So it's quite interesting how it runs at that time. Um, You can see why they commit to a big operation. Maybe that's not the one to one to go with, but you can see why they try and deliver that kind of big knockout blow. Absolutely, and 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 he's also he's he's also susceptible to airborne men selling him uh, <laughs> uh, um, uh, heroic schemes that will solve all his problems. I mean, in in Sicily, after all, mm. you know, uh, Hopkinson rather, rather than Browning really mm. sells him sells him all those glider landings mm. and stuff, mm. and and you know, which causes tension within the airborne world with Chatterton who's the glider pilot yeah, yeah. regiment mm. guy being go saying to Hopkinson or at least he says yeah. he said to Hopkinson this isn't going to mm. work this is completely mm. harebrained and he's offered the choice of doing it or going home yeah. and, and, uh, and, uh, and so on and, and so it seems you know Mon- I mean Mon- Monty doesn't seem particularly across what can actually be achieved with airborne and the mm. and the th- post Normandy di- digestion of airborne though fee- actually feeds into the Arnhem plan, which is we all, we'd all like to land in one place <laughs> together and yeah. form up and then and then fight our battle. Mm. Thank you very much. Because I mean that that that's I mean um, historian uh, called Seb Ritchie's done a load of really good work on this, and um, he looks at uh, the plan for Market Garden and Comet. Um, and he, he's just so critical of the, the plans and the ideas. And he said, it, it's as though the previous two, three years of airborne ops have completely forgotten. They don't, they don't really apply what they've learned and apply it to this particular uh, operation. He, he's absolutely right. And, um, and it's partly because Monty's not an airborne expert. Why would he necessarily be? It's not his, his, his field. So he's reliant on good advice. Um, but Browning partly is to blame for going along with the plan. Uh, but Lewis Brereton is as well, because he's the overall airborne, Allied Airborne Army commander who gets airbrushed out of this entire thing. Ryan doesn't even interview him in, when he does a bridge too far. He doesn't appear in the film, yet he's really the person who's the, um, he's responsible for carving up the airborne plan and then making Horlicks of it, um, uh, allegedly. Um, so, um, so the, you know, the, it, it's understandable why Monty doesn't quite understand how he can use airborne troops, but he's therefore, he, he should be reliant on advice. Um, Brownie doesn't particularly provide the right kind of, although he has some doubts about Market Garden as well. Um, so, but you can see how it ends up being enacted. Um, but it, I mean, isn't the, no doubt, really, that looking at the weight of the evidence that it was it was a bad plan for that particular moment, far too much of a risk. 
Um, but there were other plans which would have contributed more to possibly getting to the Rhine uh, in September 44. But also there's the argument, maybe the moment has gone. You know, you can only keep advancing so long before we're out of steam. Um, and the, the British army has you know, adapted well to that situation, but it's not really... Um, it, well, it's, it's at the end of its tether, if you like, into, by then. It maybe could have made a few better choices, but you get friction in friction in war. You know, some bad choices will be made in situations like that. And also, the campaigning season is ending essentially. I mean, one of the mm. one of the one of the things that does for Arnhem is that the weather's starting to yeah. go wrong. Mm. Um, and 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 after all, that because then you then you get the 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 sort of it's not stasis into the winter, and then the the, the you know the 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 building up to, to breaking into Germany in the spring. By the by the spring, what's the difference between the, the you know the Anglo Canadian armies and and Normandy? What's what's their temperament? What's the what's happening doctrinally? How's it running? Is it has it have they shaken out all the sort of um uh uh, uh gremlins that they were experiencing that James started off with, you know, where no one no one no one is familiar with anyone they haven't trained together they don't all speak the same language has that all been shaken out by by february in preparation for i don't, I don't think it all has been um but it's a much it's much more coherent force by january february uh, 1945 um and they've got methods and doctrines which they're pretty au fait with now they know how to make it work um so their methods of uh, infantry armour cooperation have improved. They're still hitting particularly difficulties. Um, they have started to solve problems of, say, German mortars, which have been a real bane of their lives uh, since the early early stage of the uh, the campaign. They're starting to use better radar techniques to locate where mortars are, and they can counter battery fire them more effectively. That's starting to em- emerge. The Canadians are ahead of the game on that one, um, but they still they they still have some issues. Um, there's one of their biggest problems is how you get infantry to move across open ground behind an artillery barrage, and there are still um accounts of uh junior and middle ranking commanders in you know, persuade trying to persuade <laughs> cajole their infantry to follow in as much as possible behind an infantry behind an artillery barrage because that's the best way of getting onto a target before the Germans have had recovery time. But getting infantry to accept that is really difficult. I mean, it's counterintuitive. You don't go near exploding shells, really. But actually, in this instance, you need to be as close to it as possible and hope your artillery is accurate. Um, I mean, there is the um, concern. You can see why they might be a bit worried. Um, The uh, one operation research report indicated that after, I think it was on the, after varsity, um, the medical officers and, and, and personnel taking shrapnel out of Allied troops uh, discovered that about maybe about twenty percent of it was from their own side. So there, you know, the, so that that's a trifle worrying. Um, I mean, it may be because of the wear and tear on your own artillery, but also there's more artillery being thrown around by you compared to the enemy. But nonetheless, it shows that there is a risk here. But getting your troops to lean into an artillery barrage is really difficult. The other problem they have is, of course, they're running out of junior officers. There's a real crisis and problem um, by the end of 1944 um, about convincing anybody to be a junior officer. The worst thing to be in the British Army in, in this period is, is a junior officer. The, the proportional casualty rates are, are really bad. Um, generally, the worst thing to be is in the infantry. The casualty rates are always the highest. Um, but... The officer is the person driving you forward, you know, and he has to put himself in the firing line a bit more than most of the others. And uh, senior NCOs are looking at the job in autumn and of you know November December nineteen forty four, and they're being asked, "Do you want to step up and be an officer?" And I said, "Not really. The pay's not much better. The responsibility is much greater, and my chances of survival diminish rapidly." So, so getting these guys to do that job is quite difficult. So there is a problem. Um, and infantry casualties and overall casualties spike, obviously, in the uh, during veritable um, the, the the casualties, uh, particularly in the infantry in January, February, forty five, really start to go up up again. Yeah, appalling. I mean, I was just just back in October. I was at the Reichsfeld and uh, and that cemetery there, and it is vast. Mm. I mean, it, it just goes on forever. I mean, mm. it's like one of the ones in Flanders. Yes, absolutely. And 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 people forget that. I mean. You, 
Are you talking earlier about the kind of the gaps in the our understanding or the historiography, what we concentrate on um, in, in this campaign, 44, 45? And we all get sucked into writing about Normandy. We all quite get right, sucked into writing about Arnhem or think about Arnhem and Market Garden and, and so on. And the next thing is the crossing the Rhine and you're on Lüneburg Heath. Well, there's a huge gap in between. The Reichswald battles are really, really uh, casualty intensive. Um, yeah, yeah. Casualties going through the roof, particularly in the infantry. Um, and, and part of the problem is, of course, that the, everything they've learned about how to make these operations work really well about integrating the, the kit and the technology and the firepower and the engineering equipment and all that kind of stuff, um, it all kind of falls away because within, just as they're about to, or in the early stages of Veritable, the weather changes completely, all thaws out, it rains like hell, there's mud everywhere, and everything gets stuck. So, so you're reduced to fighting another infantry battle. Then you call in the heavy artillery, the, the RAF, yeah. start bombing towns and things and flattening the places. And it slows things down. And so a number of the difficulties which have been identified come back to plague them a little bit uh, during Veritable. Um, and, I mean, you can, well, you can't imagine, but you can kind of get an, a, an idea of what those uh, soldiers were thinking in February 45, in the middle of all this. They're all being told the war's nearly over. Don't worry, you know, it's time to go home soon and so on. Um, and then they're hit with all of this and suddenly big casualty rates, the doctrines and techniques which they've refined and honed don't work quite as well as uh, and effective as they had been. The Germans are still fighting like hell during the, this, this period. Um, I mean, if this breaks the German army, this is the final moment where they offer any kind of serious opposition. Um, and after they cro- when they cross the Rhine, the German army effectively starts to melt away that they've been broken. Um, so that that's a really key battle. But you could just imagine that, you know, there's all these this talk about um, for them, the the latest stories about Dresden and the bombing and so on. Whether that should have carried on, and if you'd ask the troops in the front line in February 1945, there's no bomb. You know, keep get the war over as quickly as possible, which doesn't necessarily justify Dresden. I'm not saying that. Uh, it may or may not, but. Um, in terms of their perspective, this battle, this war is still going on really in a really big way. And I think we sometimes yeah, miss and, that. And, and it's taken on the characteristic of the, of I mean, the, the, the mud and wreckage, will, they'll all have in their mind that it's a First World War stalemate mud and mm. blood battle, yeah. won't they? Because after all, that's the, that's the again, the, the, so much of the context for how the Second World War is fought is, is the First World War. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, the moment things grind to a halt and become an infantry slanging match with giant artillery barrages and all that sort of thing, pe- people's minds are bound to be drawn back yeah. to that. And you might think, well, we're stuck. We're not going anywhere now for a very long mm. time. That, that, that's uh, absolutely the case. Eh? The, um, the shadow of the Somme, as uh, Gary Sheffield once called it, um, hangs very heavily over World War II battlefields. And, of course, all the, the, the soldiers fighting World War II... Uh, their fathers and uncles or, or whatever had fought in the First World War and they'd heard all these stories and um, they didn't... And I think as well the senior commanders, people like Montgomery, were very conscious of what happened in the First one, didn't want to repeat it. And that's one of the reasons why he pushes this idea very much of professionalism. We won't expend lives and it's absolutely necessary. And it, it's not just um, about military necessity. There is an element of... We can't fight like that again. We don't want to fight like that again. And so we will fight a different kind of war if we can. It's still bad. I mean, the, the, the casualty rates in infantry units in Normandy are akin to those of the First World War. It's still very... And the infantry makes up a much smaller proportion of the army in 1944. Um, so the, the pressures are great. The overall casualties are lower but that's because they're not in contact for uh, that much time in the Second World War. But the army tries to do what it can um, to solve the problems of the First World War and using these kind of techniques and methods and so on, firepower, like logistics, planning, engineering, excellent medical uh, support. If there's an army to get wounded in in the Second World War, um, it, it's the, the British Army 1944-45, or the American for that matter. Um, so you certainly don't get wounded in the German Army or become, suffer from battle exhaustion because there's no such thing as combat stress in the German Army during the Second World War. You're just faking it. Um, whereas in the, in the British Army, of course, it, it's, it's treated with a, a degree, I wouldn't say necessarily brilliant approach, but it's a, a, a degree of understanding. Well, at, l- at least it exists. Yes. I yeah. mean, <laughs> yes, they recognise <laughs> it. A, a, mm. They recognise it, they acknowledge mm. they need to do something mm. about it. 
Um, gosh, John, this is also, I mean, it... Um, all, well, well, yeah, because I, I wanted to ask you all about the American army and the fact that, that the, the remarkable turnaround from, you know, if you think, think 18 months before D-Day, they're running away at Fond Duc, um, <laughs> and, and 18 months further on, they've become this amazingly effective machine, mm. Mm. and you can't deny that, and by... 1945, by the war's end, they're the kind of, you know, the best army in the world, bar none, aren't they, yes, pretty much? absolutely. And, and you can't really argue that. Um, but I think maybe we should do that another time. That's next time. <laughs> yeah, next yeah, time. Come back again, John, <laughs> if you're happy. Because uh, we're, we're being a bit Brit-centric and, today, and um, uh, and I, I'm, I'm fascinated by that development of the US Army as well. I think it's really, really extraordinary. And sure. the exponential growth, both physically and in terms of their ability and capability, is just astonishing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's often from forgotten. Even, they're for me even more of a standing start, aren't they? Absolutely, well? yeah. And yeah. and also didn't fight the Germans in 1940, mm. so lack both the experience and the sort of hoodoo that the British Army mm. um, it, 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 it is carrying around with it. Because after all, the you know the British spend a lot of time going, "Well, you've not fought the Germans, old chap. You don't know what it's <laughs> yeah. like." Um, and what it's like is losing. <laughs> so um. <laughs> absolutely, and that, that's absolutely the case. And the I mean the Americans. I mean, there's an idea that Americans come in and don't listen to the British at the start and say, you, you've just been a bunch of losers since 1940. What have we got to learn from you? And that's, that's only partially true. There's an element of that. But as soon as it, they start to encounter a few difficulties, they do start listening. Um, I mean, I mean, look at the way they adapt their tactical air support methods in, in North Africa and in the Mediterranean in 43. They start off, this is the plan. This is the doctrine. We've got a field manual which tells us exactly how to do this. And within a few months, that actually it doesn't work. This does it, and Tedder and Conningham and so on in in, in the Mediterranean. So no, we'll be told you so. Now let's have a chat about how we do it better. Learn from us, and they did to a degree. But they then took it further because they had the greater resources and capacity, um, and they weren't worried about what had happened for the previous two years in the war. They hadn't had that experience. Whereas you rightly say the British were always. Well, 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 remember what happened in 1940, it can all go badly wrong. And that does affect <laughs> it. It's going to affect your mentality, certainly. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about more of that next sure, time. Yeah. Um, John, John, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, um, uh, we'll have you... We'll yeah, I've got pages of notes now. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like one of your students now. Uh, um, but, but, yeah, thank you. That was, that was uh, just utterly, utterly fascinating. So thank Great you. stuff. Thanks very much. Thanks, everyone, for listening. See you soon. Cheerio. Bye. Cheerio.